It's a good day to be together. We are so thankful for the presence of each and every one here, especially those who are visiting with us. We have, as it's been mentioned, we have several who are visiting with us. I think Arkansas is trying to make a takeover here in Kansas. If I'm not, uh, if I wouldn't be surprised by that either. But uh, thank you. Uh, but we are so glad that you are with us this morning, and if you are visiting with us from the area, we are glad that you are here, and we hope that you have been encouraged and edified as a result of our worship together and our time and our efforts this morning. And if you have questions about anything that we say or do that uh, has aroused some interest, if you'd like to sit down and open up your Bible and study along with us, we'd be happy to do so. This morning, as it has been mentioned, we are going to be discussing the topic of repentance. And I think if you could summarize the response that the gospel of Jesus Christ requires from someone in one single word, I think that word could possibly be the word repent. As we mentioned in our reading this morning, the John the, the baptizer, he is out in the wilderness and he was preaching a message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Jesus took up that same call as we discussed in Bible class this morning. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message, the essential message that Jesus had to share. It was a message that is found in the Old Testament prophets in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter uh, 12, in Hosea chapter 12 and in verse 2, Hosea says, The Lord also has a dispute with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And continuing down to verse 6, Therefore return to your God. Observe kindness and justice and wait for your God continually. The idea to turn back to God, to come back, it's a message of repentance to come back to the Lord. Turn away from your sins. Because sin has a way of disorienting us. It has a way of changing our perspective and we don't even realize that our perspective has been changed, that it has been twisted. And yet the Gospel is a call to come back to a right understanding, a right orientation. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, in Acts the third chapter, is in Peter's second sermon in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, he says, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you see that this is essential to the Gospel, this idea of repentance, coming back to God, coming back to a right orientation. Because when we are in sin, we are lost. We are disoriented. What appears to be right is wrong. And what appears to be up is down. And we shouldn't at all be surprised when we see society get everything mixed up. And then they, in turn, will accuse us of being the ones who get things mixed up. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul was in Thessalonica, in one of the accusations that the people and the unbelieving Jews and, and Gentiles that they brought against Paul and his preaching team was that they are the ones who are turning the world upside down. In fact, they were the ones who were trying to turn it up right side up, but 
people falsely accused them because sin disorients us. It causes us to lose a sense of direction. And the call to repentance is a call to come back to center. It's a call to come back to the Lord. To come back to a right understanding of how things really are. When we are in sin, we are lost and we are disoriented. And we need to repent to come back to a right orientation, a right frame of mind, to understand what is right and what is wrong. Mounts in his dictionary, he defines the idea of repentance in the Word as repentance denotes a radical turning from sin to a new way of life oriented towards God. Peter says to Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8.22, Repent of your wickedness. True repentance, he says, is proven by actions and fruitful living. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, in Acts chapter 26, when Paul was before King Agrippa, he said there about his beginning to preach of the gospel and his call to become an apostle, he said that in verse 20, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. The idea that we see is that repentance demands change in our actions. It demands change in our living. And that is something that the Gospel is very plain and very clear about. And again, as I stated, that if we could summarize the one single requirement, if there is just one single requirement that the Gospel would have, it could certainly be boiled down to the idea of repent. Turn back to God. Now that's going to involve several different things, of course. But it comes down to this idea that we need to come back to God. That's the message of the Gospel in short form. And yet, there's a lot of confusion about what repentance is. I'm not going to ask you to define it because we're going to study it this morning. And we're going to think about some things. But there are a lot of misconceptions about what repentance is. And people, I believe, they know they they need to repent. They know that the Gospel requires them to repent. That if they're going to be a citizen of the Kingdom of Heaven, that they must repent. If they're going to come back to the Lord to have their sins forgiven, that they have to repent. They understand it's a requirement, but what all is involved in that becomes a little bit of a challenge. And so this morning we want to try to clarify some of the things that maybe you even have some misconceptions about. And there is what I would call pseudo-repentance. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says some things about repentance here that are very important for us to consider this morning. And that what repentance is and what it is not. And he says very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and in verse 8, Paul He is reflecting on the fact that he wrote 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice that you are made sorrowful, 
but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. He's saying that I, I didn't want to cause you to feel bad, but I'm glad that it caused you to feel bad to go to the point that you would return to God, that you would repent. He says, For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. I think Paul here wants us to understand that there is a sense of an, an emotional response that we can sometimes have that sin might cause us to have. That you can be convicted that you have done something wrong, but just because you've been convinced and convicted that you did something wrong, that's not necessarily repentance. Repentance is not just a feeling of being sorry. Of sorry. Uh, and of sorrow. It's not just a recognition of wrong. It's not just a sense of guilt that I have done something wrong. Repentance goes beyond that, is Paul's point. Because sorrow does not always lead to repentance. The Hebrew writer makes that very clear in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And in verse 15, in Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 15, Paul says, or the just clarification, I do believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but I'll say the Hebrew writer and don't want to be a stumbling block to anyone, but in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 15, the Hebrew writer says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And then notice in verse 17, For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He was sorry that he had sold his birthright. He was sorry that his relationship with his parents and that with his brother, it was all becoming a disaster. But he did not find place to change. He did not find a place to repent and come back to God. He was allowing that birthright to go. He sold it for a single meal. He did not change his attitude at all. What we need to recognize is that repentance is not merely sorrow, regret, and remorse. It certainly will involve all of those things, but it goes much deeper than that. And I think one of the things that becomes so hard for us to repent is that we have this fear of going into the unknown, of letting go of sin and returning to this right way of thinking. Our world is all upside down when we're lost in sin. And we just cannot imagine what life would really be like if we would come back to God. If you've ever known someone who was addicted to drugs, that just cannot shake that drug addiction because they are so dependent on that drug for how they live. They have learned to live with that. 
that they just cannot imagine what life would be like without the drug. And so in their mind that it becomes a much worse possibility to live without the drug than to live with the drug addiction. Or someone who might be so intent on committing a sin willfully that they can say, well, I can just repent later. Have you ever known someone like that? Well, I can always come back to God later. I can repent. I can go ahead and enjoy life now. Someone that has that attitude, they don't understand true repentance and what is required of them. You can be sorry for the sin and the grief that it causes for you and even others, but if you don't change, then that sorrow has been useless. Notice in Acts chapter 8, when Peter was talking with Simon the sorcerer, you remember that Simon had seen Peter and others perform miracles, and he wanted that same power, and he wanted to purchase it with money. And Peter harshly, harshly rebuked him, but then he said in verse 22, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. He says, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord will forgive you. That indicates to us also that repentance is not just asking for forgiveness. That's another issue that I sometimes might run across in some of the misconceptions of the pseudo-repentance that people have. They think repentance is just asking for forgiveness. And it's deeper than that even. Because Peter says, repent and pray. Those are two distinct and separate acts that... Let's turn this off and go to this mic. That he says, repent and pray. Those are two distinct and separate acts that Peter is trying to convey here. That repentance is not what takes place whenever you just simply are asking for forgiveness. Repentance is not what happens whenever we might walk up to the front. Hopefully we've already decided to make a determination to repent before we come publicly confessing sin. Repentance will involve sorrow, regret, and remorse. It's going to involve praying and asking for forgiveness. Repentance is going to involve confessing sins publicly. It's going to involve confessing to our brothers and our sisters in private. Repentance is going to involve all of those things. But repentance is much more comprehensive than any single one of those things. We need to have a sorrow. We need to have that emotional response that produces repentance. That's something that I believe we need to recognize first about repentance. And that while a lot of these things are going to be involved in our repentance... Repentance is much deeper than that. It's much more radical, if you will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and in verse 11, the Apostle Paul would write to the church at Corinth and there as he was talking about their repentance. He says in verse 11, talking about the repentance that they had, 
because that led to salvation. He says in verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. I think all that list there in verse 11, I think you could probably categorize that in two very broad categories. One, an emotional response. Indignation, fear, longing, zeal. Those are emotional type of words. Emotionally loaded words and terms. The second idea that he has there is that these things are going to bring about a correction. Vindication. Avenging of wrong. That repentance is not just going to be this emotional response. It's going to be something that requires a determination to right the wrongs. And that's something that we're going to explore in a little bit. There's also an important point that we need to stop and recognize here that Paul talks about. Paul understands that repentance is hard. Repentance is tough. And he doesn't shy away from recognizing that. Repenting is difficult because it involves admitting that you're wrong. It involves recognizing sin in your life. It involves that you understand that you have to come back to God, that you are not in a right relationship with the Lord. But repentance produces salvation in your life. It produces salvation and forgiveness of sins. And that is perhaps the radical nature of repentance is that when we repent, there is a dramatic change in your life. That you are cleansed and you are able to be made new again. But repentance can also be very rewarding. In that in your repentance, you can become a good example for others to see. And by your example, they can be comforted. Whenever someone you know is in sin, it oftentimes causes distress and pain and anguish and you're, you're sorry that they are in such sin. That when they repent, you are brought so much encouragement. And Paul picks up on that here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 12. He says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. He's saying, really, the reason I wrote this letter, it wasn't to just pick on the church, or it wasn't to pick on one person in, in sin, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. I didn't write it just because of that. But that your earnestness is seen. Your commitment to truth. 
your commitment to following the Lord, it is evident. And in everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent, that you wanted to come back to God, that you have encouraged me, Paul is saying, because of your desire to want to do right, you came back to God. And whenever we might, might know someone who is in sin, when we know someone who is involved in something that they ought not to be involved in, maybe they know better, but maybe we need to go and have a difficult conversation with them. That's what Paul was willing to do. He was willing to go to them and talk to them. And we may not like confrontation. We may not like and enjoy those conversations because they are difficult, they're painful, and they expose a lot of things. But we need to have those difficult conversations because they're necessary. No matter how well they may be received, they could be received very well, in fact. The Corinthians, and I think that may be what surprises us, you read 1 Corinthians and Paul is just having to lay it down on them. He's having to bring that rod of rebuke and rod of correction against them. But how do they handle it? They handle it very well and they repent. They come back to the Lord. And Paul is encouraged. He's comforted by that. Because repentance by its very nature is radical. It shows innocence. It shows a desire to do what's right. It shows a genuine conviction to do what God has said. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. Is that repentance is transformative. Conviction of sin produces an emotional response and a determination to change. But as we have mentioned, repentance goes beyond just that conviction. It goes beyond just an emotional response. We can be convicted that we've done something wrong. We can be convic convicted that we've lied. We may know that lying is a sin. We may be convicted that we were, had a little too much to drink one day and that we sinned against our family and our friends. Maybe we are convicted that something that we are involved in that we're hiding is sinful. That conviction needs to produce something. It needs to produce an emotional response. As we have been acknowledging, there is an emotional response that is required that Paul talks about very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. A sorrow that is according to the will of God whenever God's will changes us and convicts us, it's going to transform us. Now, when we come to acknowledge sin and whenever we are convicted of it, we are going to not be content to stay the same. We're going to be forced 
to change. We need to have an emotional response of remorse. That I have sinned. I have done something wrong. And I'm sorry that I've done so. It's one of the hardest lessons that we have to learn. Is to admit that we're wrong. Is to admit that we've done something against the God of heaven that we should not have done. Having that emotional response, having a desire to repent is important, but obtaining God's forgiveness requires more than just that desire. Yes, sin is bad. Yes, we need to be forgiven. But repentance requires a transformation, a change in our behavior. And so it has to move beyond remorse and godly sorrow. It has to begin to have this resolve that we're going to change. In Luke chapter 15, in Luke the 15th chapter, Jesus gives a parable about a man with two sons. And one went off and wasted his livelihood, his inheritance, we call him the prodigal son. And what is amazing about that prodigal is that after he hits rock bottom, he finally decides it's time to go home. It says there in Luke chapter 15, the New American Standard Bible in verse 17, when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. If you just stop right there, what has he done differently? He's had the change of mind. He's had a change of his conviction, but he hasn't acted upon that. Maybe he has begun that journey of repentance, but he hasn't brought forth fruit worthy of repentance. But then you read in verse 20, So he got up and came to his father. And his father, he sees his son while he's still far, still far away. And then the son tells him in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see this man progress, don't you? You see, after he hits rock bottom, he begins to come to his senses. He begins to recognize this is what I have done and I have got to get out of this mess. I have got to get out of this sin. I've got to change and He resolves to change. But just making that step to resolve of resolve that I'm going to do something until you actually do it, it's not true, transformative, genuine repentance. It's one of the steps involved in repentance. 
Because many people, they know they need to change. They know what they ought to do to change. But they just will not do it. They just will not do it. And if they haven't done it, then they have not repented. Third part of repentance is that there's going to be restitution that's made. If you turn over just a couple of pages in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 19, we are introduced to a man named Zacchaeus. We probably heard about Zacchaeus, that he was short and small in stature, so he had to climb a tree in order to see Jesus. But there's so much more to that story about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were known for skimming off the top from taking more than what was required really by the Roman Empire. And they would take some for their, their, own, their own selves. And Jesus, when he sees Zacchaeus, he's willing to dine with him. And that was something that was strange as well. But then what we really learn about Zacchaeus is his genuine heart. It says in verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. I'm not entirely convinced that Zacchaeus had defrauded anyone because he says, if I have defrauded anyone, if I have stolen from anybody. But notice what he says. He says, if I have done so, what is his response going to be? That I am going to give back Four times as much, which is way beyond what the law actually required of someone. He was going to go above and beyond to make things right. That's restitution. He was going to try to fix as much as he could of what he had broken. That teaches us something very important about salvation and repentance. That if we are going to repent, it's going to require us to go and right some wrongs. That means we're going to have to face and confront some things that might not be pleasant for us to face. That we're going to have to acknowledge that we did something wrong and I need to fix it as best as I can. And I love the story of Zacchaeus because it is butted up just against the story in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, there's another rich man who we are introduced to. We call him the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you need to keep the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't you know, murder. Don't steal. Those kinds of things. 
And he says, hey, I've done all that. Then Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. That you need to go sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor if you're going to have treasure in heaven. You know what that man did? He went away sorrowful because he was very rich. What a contrast between that man and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is like, look, if I have stolen from anyone, if I have done anything wrong, I am going to go and multiply that wrong. I'm going to try to fix it by four times. But the rich young ruler, he's told, you need to go sell all that you have. He goes away sorrowful. In the book of Ephesians, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says in verse 28, talking about this idea that we need to be a new creature, a new person in Christ. He says in verse 28, He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. I love how what Paul is really trying to convey here is this idea of repentance and restitution. That it's not just good enough if you were a thief that you stop stealing. It's not good enough to just stop doing that thievery. He says, yes, that's the first step. But what do you have to go on and do? You must go start learning how to work, laboring with your hands. And then what does he do? It's not even that, is it? He has to go even beyond that. He has to learn how to share what he works for. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? When we remove that old person of sin and we become a new creature in Christ Jesus, it's like this total and complete transformation. It would be like someone that would say, I need to change the oil in my car, and then just begins to add new oil. That's not how that works, is it? (laughs) You don't just add the new oil to the engine. You have to remove the old oil... But even just removing the old oil isn't enough. You have to change the filter. You have to add the new oil to the engine. I think we need to begin thinking of repentance in much the same way. That there is going to be a process. And we have to take out the old and we have to put in the new. New ways of thinking. New behaviors. That will bring glory to God. And then of course we need to confess our faults and pray. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, in that passage where Simon tried to purchase the power of God with money, Peter told him, repent and pray. And then in verse 24, Says, but Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
think he understood the principle of what James tries to convey to us. In James chapter 5 and in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. When we recognize our sin, when we are convinced that we have done something wrong, we need to allow that emotional response and we need to have godly sorrow that pushes us to change. We need to make a commitment and resolve to change. We need to go above and beyond. We need to seek to make restitution and correct some of the things that we have done. We need to ask for forgiveness. We need to confess to our brothers and our sisters so that they can strengthen us, so that they can encourage us, so that they can help us stand. Because if we do not repent, there's danger. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If we do not repent, we will suffer the fate of eternal separation from God. Repentance is a challenge, but it's something that is required of us all. Paul would go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Whenever someone refuses to repent and come back to God, it's a reason to mourn because it's a denial of the gospel. It's a denial and a rejection of the forgiveness of sins. That's what's so sad whenever someone stays in their sin. And even though repentance is an overlooked and oftentimes misunderstood part of becoming a Christian or returning to God and correcting our life even after we have become a Christian. It's something that we need to understand even better. This morning, if you are a child of God, but you have turned back to sin, the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ invites you to repent, to come back to God, to seek mercy and forgiveness in God's grace. Come confess your faults to one another and we'll pray with you and pray for you. But maybe it is that you have never named the name of Christ. You've never put Christ on in baptism. And again, the message is the same. Repent. Repent. Come back to God. You need to also, as Peter said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We would encourage you to come back to the Lord, to repent and turn from your sin 
and begin living the life that God has called you to live. If we can help you in any way this morning, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?